0: Welcome to The Change, a podcast about perimenopause for people in their 30s and 40s. I'm your host, Caitlin O'Connor, naturopathic doctor with a practice in Denver, Colorado, supporting patients with their health and hormones throughout the many phases of life. All right, before we begin, I wanted to offer a content advisory. We are talking a lot about body parts this episode, as well as sex and sexuality. So depending on the company you keep, you may want to pop in some headphones or save this one for later. Content advisory number two, we do have a brief moment in our early question and answers where we are talking about trends in weight gain that can be typical in perimenopause. And if any talk about weight is something you want to avoid today, go ahead and skip from about minute three to minute seven. To better understand fat phobia and how this impacts the health and health care options for fat people, please read the incredible What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat by Aubrey Gordon. Today we talk with Dr. Gretchen Fye an expert in hormone therapy, as well as all things related to sexual health, especially through perimenopause. We had so much great content, we made two episodes. Part one is perfect if you're interested in creating or maintaining a rich and comfortable sex life throughout perimenopause. And we also review how hormones impact vaginal and vulvar tissues, what changes folks might experience, and the very effective treatment options that are available. And part two is all things hormone therapy, and is a deep exploration of the risks and benefits of this approach and what this therapy can and cannot do. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Gretchen Fry. She started her clinical practice as an OB-GYN in 1989, and over the years, she developed a special interest in menopause and sexual health. She's recently retired from clinical practice and focusing on her encore career as a sexuality educator, presenting to other healthcare professionals, patients, and student groups about the medical side of sexual health. You can learn more at GretchenFryMD.com. We'll have links to that in our
1: show notes. So welcome, Dr. Gretchen. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm excited to be here today talking about some of my favorite stuff. Perfect. So I start
0: all my interviews with the same three questions just to kind of break the ice, get to know you. Uh, So the first question is, what is something you do now that your younger self would have judged you for?
1: That was a hard one. I It's good I had a little vent <laughs> warning. I had to really think about that. Um, I And I decided it was coloring my hair. I ah. always said I would never color my hair. And of course, why would I? Because I had great hair when I was younger. <laughs> it was really long and really blonde. And yeah, but then it changed and, and it made me sad. And so then I colored it. So my,
0: my answer is wearing comfortable shoes, right? And I still, you know, I still like heels. I still wear my heels. But when I was younger, it was like stilettos are nothing three inches or more like I was wearing heels. I was not taking them off at the wedding party or the, you know, reception or the club. I was wearing them all night long. I was 100 percent willing to suffer. But I'm no longer sort of willing to suffer that way because I'm like, oh, yeah, that really hurts. And that hurts differently. Right. (laughs) Like It hurts for a few days now. So I like that question just as far as like softening our judgment about like both our choices and the choices other folks are making.
1: Good idea. I like it, too.
0: Uh, So what surprised you about your perimenopause?
1: The weight gain, because I was not going to gain the weight like everybody else did. (laughs) (laughs) And that's exactly what every patient would say coming into my office. What is this, often with expletive inserted? Yeah, that was a nasty surprise.
0: Let's talk about that a little bit more, because that is such a huge concern that people have. And it's so hard for me, because what I'm constantly struggling with as a doctor is How do I address these real concerns people have? And the fact that I think it's reasonable to have like an aesthetic preference, right? Like people should be able to do whatever they want with their bodies. And also, how do I wrestle with the fact that so many of the sort of beauty standards and ideals that we have are sort of created by this like capitalist patriarchal let me sell you something to fix this quote unquote problem and the fact that almost everybody has some degree of like body dysmorphia or disordered eating or shame around their body so like how do all these things exist at the same time and and how do we address them that is such a huge clinical topic that i'm always wrestling internally like yes you have a concern but it's a physiologically normal process, and it's probably, to some degree, not hugely impactful on your health, right? Especially if people's labs are looking good, they're active. How would you address that with folks?
1: Yeah, I've struggled with this over the years, and I've never come up really with a perfect answer yet. But what I try to do is, is to emphasize this is physiologically normal, and I say to them, you know, I've been lucky enough to go to a lot of different places in the world, and I notice that no matter who the people are, where I'm hanging out at the moment. The older people all have thicker middles. And, you know, they're not necessarily American and eating crap and never exercising. Many of them are extremely fit and eating very well and they're healthy in every way. But our shape just changes as we get older. And you can, through great effort, keep yourself thinner and maybe even keep that waist a little bit thinner. But it requires tremendous effort. It's like the six inch heels. How much do you want to torture yourself to maintain this?
0: And I think we have some false assumptions, like if I lose weight, I will be happier. And sometimes when folks are going through this transition, not only are they already having like mood disturbances or mood changes, but there's this fear, I think, of losing that youth privilege or pretty privilege where if people were in smaller size bodies and sort of fit the mold of a more traditionally attractive person and they were kind of checking all those boxes and all of a sudden that starts to shift and change there's this big fear of like people aren't going to pay attention to me and that is also like a real thing like you don't want to say oh don't worry about it nothing's going to change everything's going to stay the same it's like i think that there's like a real anxiety there but also helping folks explore that like well why do you feel this way and honestly what would change like if you lost 10 pounds or 20 pounds or how would your life actually change and could you just be that happy now? <laughs> or maybe there's some other things that are impacting your true happiness, but you're focusing on the weight piece because it's easier to control. I don't know. It's a yeah. tough one.
1: Two, two useful thoughts I have are the phrase, my body has been a friend to me. And, you know, you need to be kind to that body. It, it helps to see it as a separate entity sometimes, but as, as one that's, that's a, a dear and cherished one. And uh, honestly, the other thing that helped me during this time was, as you know, my. Husband and I, when we retired, um, we've been living part of our time in Italy. And, you know, it's a different attitude there. I'm not saying Italian women don't torture themselves to be thin and wear stilettos and such because they do, but there's definitely much more acceptance of uh, older women as still being very feminine and very attractive. And that has been a kind of a healing thing for me with this aging body.
0: Yeah, that cross cultural piece is so important because I think when we're talking about, you know, what's normal in America, our culture is not super accepting, but if you look cross-culturally, that's not universally true. So I think stepping outside of that piece can be really helpful as well. And then my final question is, what did you enjoy about perimenopause?
1: I have to be just so boring and say I, I enjoy not having periods anymore. I had the easiest periods. They were never hard, uh, but it's really cool to not have to worry about that and pack extra stuff when I travel and, yeah. I, and all of that good stuff.
0: Freedom. There's freedom on the other side. Yep. All right. So we will start with the topic of sexuality and sexual health during perimenopause. So what led you to this specialty?
1: Well, I think sexuality is at the core of who we are. Sex has always been one of my favorite things to think about and participate in. So (laughs) I think everybody ought to at least have the chance to feel that way about it as I took care of more perimenopausal and menopausal patients, it became clear that this was a, a huge troubling aspect of this change over time. And, you know, having entered that age myself, it was even more personal and more interesting to learn about it, uh, learn how to deal with it and help other people to do the same.
0: And in your experience, what challenges with sexuality are people experiencing most during perimenopause?
1: there are a lot because perimenopause truly affects every aspect of our lives the, the psychological and emotional aspects sometimes cognitive certainly physical and physiological but the most common complaints i hear have to do with discomfort and with low libido and the discomfort is probably the simpler of the two topics low libido having a lot of factors that that play into it
0: yeah we'll definitely dive into the libido piece cuz i think that again is the is the more complex topic when people are reporting issues with vaginal discomfort, pain with intercourse, change in sensation, what is usually the underlying physiology there?
1: So, what is going on, and this, this doesn't happen early in perimenopause, it's more of a later change as the estrogen levels are, are staying low for a period of time. But what is going on is that there are estrogen dependent tissues the vaginal lining, the urethral lining, the vulva, particularly the inner labia all of those tissues need estrogen to be healthy. And in some women, the changes are very mild and easily dealt with. In some, they're quite profound. And this is a change that does not reverse itself once the sort of chaos of the perimenopause is over. You know, hot flashes will eventually go away. Sleep will improve. But but these tissue changes are one-way changes. They don't get better. There's actual thinning of the vaginal lining Uh, There's loss of the elastic fibers underneath the superficial layers, and there's drying of the vagina. And the fact that the lining is is thinning and drying and tightening led one lecturer to make a great example. She said a premenopausal vagina is like a thick, cushy, pleated skirt. The postmenopausal vagina is like a tight pencil skirt.
0: (laughs) When people are sort of dealing with that sort of tighter pencil skirt, obviously we can have pain with intercourse, we can have change of sensation, vaginal dryness. Any other kind of concerns that come in under that umbrella?
1: Yes, there's uh, another set of changes, and that is in the vaginal microbiome. As the lining thins and the estrogen goes away, the lining cells of the vagina change, and they're no longer able to support the normal flora, the lactobacilli, that keep the vaginal pH acid and help to prevent infection. So, both vaginal and urinary infections are easier to acquire in that low estrogen environment. Some women also notice more problems with incontinence or controlling urine when they cough or sneeze, and there are a couple factors going on there, but one of them is the thinning of the urethral lining, which it is turning into its own little pencil skirt. It's not cushy, and it's harder for it to close tightly.
0: So for folks who aren't familiar, define the urethral lining for me.
1: So the urethra is the passage that connects the bladder to the outside world. And it, it is lined with cells like any bodily passage. And uh, that lining is, is more cushy and um, easily compressed or easier for it to close when it has enough estrogen.
0: Perfect. Yeah. And I see this a lot in my practice where folks are coming in with all of a sudden they have chronic urinary tract infections, yeast infections, bacterial overgrowth a worsening of maybe some incontinence symptoms that they had when they were younger. And I'm often shocked at the fact that nobody has addressed the vaginal microbiome. Nobody's addressed the vaginal tissue. They're basically getting antibiotics, 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 versus anyone taking a look or considering, oh, maybe some estrogen could be helpful in this person so that we can Reboot the lining, get the microbiome back in check, and we can sort of prevent some of these infections. So, I think that's a really good topic for folks to have in their mind that if they start having some of these issues, yes, it could be, you know, sort of a one off bacterial imbalance or infection, but a lot of times we want to look at that underlying cause so we don't have to worry about the repeat exposure to antibiotics and things like that. Definitely. So, what interventions do you find to be the most effective?
1: When there's thinning and drying of the vaginal lining, and particularly when it's reached the point where penetration is painful, the best remedy, by and large, is some form of vaginal estrogen. And there are lots of preparations. They're very low dose. They're extremely safe. One could use estriol, uh, a weaker estrogen that has very little systemic effect, but there are a lot of estriol receptors in the vaginal lining, or it could be estradiol. Or some products contain DHEA, which is an adrenal androgen hormone that can convert into both testosterone and estrogen. But all of those things help to restore that vaginal lining back to the pleated skirt condition. And it doesn't take more than a very tiny dose to do this. You do have to use it regularly. It's a maintenance kind of thing, not a one time thing. But by doing that, the microbiome goes back to normal. uh, The resistance to infection is restored. And most importantly, if there's been pain, It is almost always completely eliminated.
0: And how long do folks typically have to be on the hormone replacement topicals before they start to see results?
1: I tell people to be patient and give it about a month. It takes time to build that new tissue. And probably they'll have the maximum effect after six or eight weeks. And at that point, if it's not a satisfactory effect, then you could look at altering the dose or changing things up a little bit.
0: And what percentage of folks do you feel like get benefit from that treatment?
1: I have never seen a patient not benefit from that treatment. Um, I would say that not everyone needs it. Some women go through menopause, never take any form of hormones, and continue to have enjoyable, pain-free, penetrative sex, and no problem with bladder and vaginal infections, and just never need any of it. But if it becomes a problem, then the hormones are, as I say, the most satisfying solution because they really take care of the underlying problem rather than just trying to maybe put some lubricant or put a moisturizer in there when you need it or, you know, even put the right bacteria in there because they're not going to continue to to thrive. You'd have to keep adding them in.
0: Yeah. And I think that's the message I really want to get out because, again, the people that I hear with these concerns... It's almost as if they don't know it's a solution or it hasn't been offered to them as a solution. So they have this fear, which, again, is one of the biggest fears I hear about this transition is that they're no longer going to be able to have a satisfying sex life or they're going to be dry or they're going to be in pain. So I just really want that message of there's an almost universally effective solution out there. It's super safe. And for people who are having those issues, like. Again, that's the least of my concerns when folks come to me kind of with that perimenopause, menopausal transition. If that's their only concern, I'm kind of like giving myself a high five like, oh, we've got we've got this part figured out. Like, This is one of the simpler things because it really is that physiology of the interaction between the estrogen and the vaginal tissue. And as long as the vaginal tissue has that exposure, the vast majority of the time it's going to sort of plump right up and respond really
1: well. It's one of the few ways in which you can almost literally turn back the clock on aging. Maybe the only way that I know of.
0: We love it. And how would you recommend folks talk to their doctors about getting this care?
1: You know, self-advocacy is is important. It's It's a little intimidating to ask your doctor for something they haven't offered, but it might help to just practice a little script and say, hey, I've been reading about you know, vaginal-only estrogen products, and I think I might benefit from one of these. Would you be willing to prescribe that for me so I can give it a try? And keep in mind that many docs haven't got the memo about this either, and those that know that it exists may, may still be a little misled by something that trips patients up all the time, and that is that the FDA has a black box warning on these products, and it displays the same risks that the FDA warns about with systemic hormone replacement, namely breast cancer, heart attack, and stroke. But these vaginal products do not have any of those risks. And yet the FDA moves so slowly that even though some of the national organizations have petitioned them to remove this black box warning, it still appears on these products. And it scares off patients and it scares off physicians sometimes.
0: Yeah, it seems like we haven't quite sort of caught up to what the research is really stating when it talks about sort of the vaginal application of estrogens, about how they really are quite safe, the majority of that hormone, if I understand, stays locally. We're not really impacting systemic hormone levels. We're really just feeding those vaginal cells.
1: That's true. The use of vaginal estrogen does change uh, blood levels of estradiol at full dose, but minimally and not out of the postmenopausal range. And it's such a small change that, in fact, even with breast cancer survivors who had estrogen-dependent cancers, once they've finished their treatment, if they're in the clear, most oncologists I worked with would allow them then to use the vaginal estrogen products because it just wasn't enough of a dose that they were worried about it.
0: And I think that is really important as well because I'll have folks show up in my practice and say, oh, my mom had breast cancer, my sister, my aunt, I've got a family history of breast cancer, therefore... I'm not a candidate for any hormone therapy, and oftentimes we're doing a little bit of re-education that we wouldn't want to necessarily do some other forms, either oral or higher dose topical, like a skin patch, but that they still could very likely be a candidate for the vaginal applications. Definitely. All right, perfect. And switching topics a little bit, what positive changes do people report around their sexuality when they're entering that perimenopausal period?
1: Well, many of them report greater freedom. There's freedom from the worry of pregnancy. Uh, There's the increased knowledge of your own body uh, and your own pleasure and what gives you pleasure as you get older and know yourself better. Uh, There may be an awakening of who we are and a reassessment of everything. And there's often more confidence for women to say, you know what, I've had boring, insufficient sex for years, and I'm just not going to settle for that anymore, (laughs) whether they're partnered or they're not. Uh, they they feel a little bolder and freer to communicate their needs and perhaps have a little better language to do it with.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the benefits of this transitionary period is that some folks come out the other side with a truer sense of self or even just less of an interest of what other folks think of them or how they might judge them. And that might lead to sort of a broadening of their experience of their sexuality or who they're interested in being partnered with or what kind of things they're interested in exploring. So that's one of the reasons why I'm so interested in how do we keep sex pain free and enjoyable so people can take advantage of this phase of their life and take advantage of some of hopefully this sort of new confidence or new interest or less sort of tolerance for, th- for things that aren't serving them well. And so if we can get the physical components comfortable, then it's like, great, like spread your wings, fly, take, take this new vagina out on the town and see, see what she can get into. So now let's move on and chat about libido, which in contrast to sort of more physical symptoms, libido is one of the trickier things to address in my experience. Tell me a little bit about your approach when, people come and are talking to you about low libido.
1: So first, I want to find out what they mean by low libido. For some women, this means I look at attractive men or women, depending on their orientation, uh, and I feel desire. But with my partner, I just don't feel any desire. Or it might mean to them when my partner and I do have sex, I generally get into it and I start to get aroused and I feel good and it's enjoyable. And I think, we should do this more, but I just never think of it. That's probably the most common scenario. And for some, it just means that there's a libido mismatch. Maybe they have a partner who's still very interested, who's still asking about and and pressuring for sex very often, but their desire doesn't match, and so they feel that they're abnormal. But the general scenario where there's either a mismatch or there's a lack of wanting to initiate sex, that's has several factors to it. One of them is if we're in a long-term partnership, the beginning of a partnership is always new and exciting. And I'll just mention a book as an aside that's very good. It's Esther Perel, P-E-R-E-L. And the book is Mating in Captivity, Mm -hmm. where she talks about newness being exciting and attractive and routineness being boring and not attractive. And how do you bring that newness into the ongoing relationship? And then there's The piece where, you know, perhaps we do need to tune up on our relationship. A lot of women, as I mentioned before, have put up with boring sex for years. And why would they get excited about having boring sex? And they need to have that conversation about maybe exploring some new territory. And then there is spontaneous desire versus responsive desire. Yeah, we're all sort of brought up with this model, maybe based on the Kinsey work or what have you, that desire just happens. And when we're young, it it often does. You may be just walking down the street, and again, another lecturer recently said, "Lightning bolt to the genitals, boom! Suddenly, I feel desire, and then you either go home to your partner or go out and find one and hopefully consummate that desire." As we get older, there's less of that. You do see it when people start new relationships. Sometimes uh, there's a lot of spontaneous desire. But more often, we see responsive desire. And what that means is intimacy begins first. Uh, We may not be in the mood to have sex at all, but if we cuddle or stroke or start to make out a little bit with our partner, then arousal begins to happen. And that is normal. It is, in fact, more the norm than not as we get older. And so sometimes once women find that out, they realize, oh, there's nothing wrong with my libido at all. And that's when you talk about, you know, instead of just falling into bed together, you plan for a date and you let some anticipation build and some suspense. And maybe you think about setting a mood and whatever way that is, whether it's a, a date or whether it's the physical environment. And and that's how sex in the second half of life differs from sex in the first half, because it does, doesn't all happen suddenly and quickly and it's over with. Actually, it can be more delicious and drawn out and a little more quality over quantity
0: yeah, I think that contrast between spontaneous arousal and situational arousal is really important, because I would say that is one of the biggest things I find when people are talking to me about low libido is they define libido as like a, a lightning bolt to the genitals. You're just walking around and spontaneously, you're like, "Oh, I would like to have sex right now." Which again works well when you're younger. Also sometimes when you're older, you're getting that spontaneous desire, and then you look around and you're like, "Oh, there's a couple kids, here's some dishes, here's some work emails, right? So then you have that imbalance between, oh, I have this moment, I would love to grab it, but my life responsibilities are in the way. So there's less likelihood that you're able to act on that spontaneous libido. But I also think that what we think of like what is normal libido is framed in what's more typical for a male libido. Obviously, sexuality is going to exist along a spectrum and folks from all genders are going to be at different places along that spectrum. But if we're making a broad generalization, more men are going to experience more episodes of spontaneous libido. And then if you compare that to more women, especially as they get a little older and I think our brains start to be more sensitive to stressors, especially stressors around working and Parenting and taking care of our parents as they get older, as those stressors mount, it tends to shift away from more spontaneous to that more uh, responsive libido. Uh, And I think a lot of it comes from that sort of patriarchal what is normal for men is the norm and what women experience is pathology,
1: right? I think that's very well said. And it is important to prioritize intimacy as a form of self-care. And as a form of relationship care, obviously, the flip side of the patriarchy and the expectations on males is that many of our male partners have been acculturated to not be allowed intimacy unless it's in a sexual context. Mm -hmm. That is the Mm -hmm. only way they can receive. And, you know, they're stressed out as they get older, too. They're worried about performing. They're worried about satisfying their partner. It's really important for the two partners to, to have intimacy, whatever that looks like. And so that's actually a good segue into the idea that we also have to reexamine our expectations about what a sexual encounter is as we get older. And the focus should be away from goal-oriented, you have to have an orgasm, I have to have an orgasm, we have to have penis and vagina sex if we're a straight couple, and that if we don't achieve those things, then we've failed. Yeah. The focus needs to move to pleasure. What feels good? And there are lots and lots of ways to do that. Uh, we're often dealing as we get older with some barriers of even if there's not pain, even if we have a good healthy vaginal lining, for example, uh, there is diminished sensation, which you alluded to. And we have to sometimes overcome that barrier to get stimulated enough for a good arousal or or a good orgasm. And that's where many couples discover, say, vibrators for a different kind of and more intense sti- stimulation Some discover different lubricants, whether just to enhance sensation a little or to actually stimulate a little response like the warming and cooling gels that are out there that provide really just a little mild irritant, and that enhances sensation. So there are a lot of tools in the toolbox, so to speak, that we can bring in to enhance that sexual experience, but we need to first let go of some of the expectations. Another great analogy I love is we're used to, oh, you want to go to the playground? Let's go to the playground. But we have to get on the slide or it doesn't count. And what do you mean you just want to go on the swings? And I want to go on the monkey bars. You know, we need to think of it as let's go play and let's not have any expectations.
0: Yeah, so less of a agenda and more is just an open-ended experience. Mm -hmm. Do you have, you know, a set of folks who have made it to this phase of life and haven't really explored much with like, self-pleasure or or bringing themselves to orgasm or even having a pleasurable sexual experience with themselves, which I think is sort of an important first step before we're even talking to our partners or, or meeting up with folks and being like, hey, this is what I like. So for people who are sort of new to this idea or experience, what advice would you give to them?
1: Thank you for bringing that up. That's an excellent point. Many of us received little or no training about what sex should be as we were growing up and may have gone straight into a marriage where our partner had an idea about how it was going to be. Uh, And so self-exploration is hugely important. Another great book called Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski uh, is a great one to read to enhance self-knowledge and definitely exploring what feels good to you on your own. That's very helpful to then communicate because these are hard things to talk about Even with, or maybe especially with, a long-term partner, we get in our ruts of we've decided there are certain things we're not talking about over the years, (laughs) and it can be hard to reopen this. There are two other things I wanted to mention in regard to changing and enhancing the sexual experience, and one is the use of erotica and fantasy, uh, which is very, very helpful. Our brains really are our most important sex organ. And often the difference between a frustrating sexual experience and a mind-blowing one is what's going on in your head. And so that's uh, a question of getting some of the old scripts out of there. And the old scripts are running messages like, oh, my God, are my thighs really this big? And I'm sweaty. And there are dishes in the sink. And there are a couple of kids down the hall. And changing to scripts such as, I always wanted to do this on a blanket out in the open where somebody might come across us or whatever fantasy has been part of your life. And if you need ideas for fantasies, there are lots of books out there for that, too. Nancy Friday collected fantasies of real women in the 70s and titled it Secret Garden. And that one can be fun. And there are updated versions of that out there. Yeah, Awesome. And then the last thing I wanted to mention is there is this expectation that uh, in many circles that if you take hormone replacement therapy, systemic hormone replacement therapy, that uh, libido will return. And I want to get rid of that expectation because other than giving really high doses of testosterone, which would nudge you, say, into the male range, the range we were aiming for with my transgender men, um, other than that big of a blast of testosterone, taking hormone therapy is probably not going to bring back libido that it makes you feel better if you're miserable with perimenopausal symptoms, that could be very helpful for libido, just because you're going to feel better overall. Yeah, But it doesn't suddenly switch it back on. And no matter what the marketing tells you, no matter what the clinic that's, you know, maybe putting in a testosterone pellet might tell you, that is not going to happen unless you're, you're using doses that are really higher than you ought to be using.
0: Yeah. And I, I I would second that. I think a lot of time people are looking for that like quick fix, like, oh, give me the botanical, give me the testosterone and my hormones are going to change. And that's why my libido is low. But I think the majority of the time it's coming from the brain, the neurology, how we're processing stressors, how we're processing our relationship, what our expectations are around libido. It unfortunately doesn't tend to be a quick fix, unlike the vaginal symptoms, which I'm like, yes, I know exactly what to do. Libido, I'm like, all right, we got to sort of dig in. I always recommend Come As You Are. I love that book. We'll put it in the show notes. Uh, And then the second follow-up question to that is, for people who are looking for erotica or fantasy material, it sounds like The Secret Garden. We'll find that. We'll link that as well. Anything else? Because I think there's this big stigma or barrier where people are like, how can I... Access erotica or pornography—that's going to speak to me. That isn't just going to potentially worsen some of those misogynistic scripts that are that are already running in my head. So, do you have any specific recommendations for folks
1: who maybe aren't familiar and are, are wanting to dip their toes in the water? Right, it's a scary thing to you know yeah. go onto the just hop onto the web web and internet and start looking for porn. pornography. <laughs> there are female uh, pornographic filmmakers that are making um, probably. Three decades ago, they would have called it soft porn, but today I think we'd call it feminist porn or feminist erotica. Even and uh, one name that comes to mind off the top of my head is Erica Lust, L-U-S-T, who's a Swedish filmmaker, uh, and she has a, a channel uh, with features that are very much more romance oriented and affection oriented, and yet they're still erotic yeah. uh, without being explicit and hardcore. Uh, and another one is Jessica Drake, who makes the wicked. Films. I think Wicked Films is her company. Awesome. And very interestingly, she collaborated with Joan Price, who is a matriarch in the sexual education community. And they made a film called uh, Wicked Films Senior Sex, in which they depicted real seniors having real sex in a real love relationship. And there's also a big educational component to some of the films. And so those can be wonderfully helpful and interesting and moving for people.
0: Oh, perfect. Love that. Yeah, because I think finding an entryway and then if folks are like, oh, I'm kind of into this and maybe are looking for more sort of explicit or hardcore women owned, women run, gender diverse things, things like that. So not necessarily going ethically
1: done, no sex trafficking involved, you know, there's consent involved.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. We want to be seeing, you know, consenting adults having fun. Right. I think is the the first step for any enjoyable sexual encounter. And then finally on this topic, what is one message you wish that all perimenopausal people could hear in relation to their sexuality?
1: This is just the beginning of a great new phase.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode. And remember, we had so much great info, we made another episode. So in part two, we'll be digging into the ins and outs of menopause hormone therapy. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Change, a podcast about perimenopause for folks in their 30s and 40s. I'm Dr. Caitlin O'Connor, and our executive producer and audio engineer is Denise Matsko of Empowerment Ventures, theme song created by Lady Gang Music from Denver, Colorado. You can check out show notes and find and share episodes at drkaitlin.com podcast. And while you're there, you can sign up for my newsletter. This podcast is a labor of love, and if you like it, please tell your friends and subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. Now for the legally appropriate disclaimers. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. This does not constitute the practice of medicine, and this podcast does not give medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship has been formed. Listeners should not delay or disregard medical advice for any condition they have. And if you aren't getting good care, advocate for yourself, explore your options, and try the best you can. Until next time, I love you, and you're doing a great job.